Amira and her husband serve as missionaries in a, a tiny little island in the middle of the Pacific. But 10 years ago, they were members of our church in Japan. And uh, 10 years before that, Amira was a devout follower of Islam. Fast forward a little bit, she's in our church now, and, and she comes to us one day and she says, hey, uh, I'd love to share with your, your people, teach a class on Islam, would you like that? And we say, absolutely, uh, let's do that. And for six weeks, she teaches the, the course, and, and over the course, she, she tells us her story. She comes from a Muslim background country, a Muslim background uh, community, a Muslim background family, all seeking to be devout uh, Muslims, and uh, that was her life. And so uh, as she got into college, she had the opportunity to go study uh, outside of her country, go study in Europe somewhere. And as she was studying in Europe and making European friends, uh, she began to get some dreams. And in these dreams, they were very disturbing to her. Uh, Each morning she'd wake up and the dreams would be very vivid. And she would pray to Allah that that he would take these dreams away because she thought that Satan was sending her dreams. And she got dream after dream after dream. And then finally, uh, she told some of her new European friends, hey, I had this dream. Jesus was in the dream, and he was doing this. And and they would listen. And and then as she continued to tell the stories, they said, well, wait a minute. And and they went and they grabbed their Bible, and and they went to the Gospels, and they said, tell us that story. Tell us your dream again. And, And she was receiving dreams of the story of the life of Christ. Long story short, uh, she uh, put her faith and trust in Jesus. Uh, She would go on to meet her husband who was in the military and uh, her her family, her Muslim family back in uh, her country uh, knew that she was marrying an American and and they knew that she was marrying an American Christian. They didn't love that, but that's okay as long as she stayed true to the faith. So she taught the course six weeks and at the end of the course, she said, hey guys, uh, I want you to pray for me. I want to do two things. I've been a Christian now for several years, and I want to do two things. First, I want to get baptized, and then I want to tell my family that I'm a follower of Jesus. And we're like, yeah, of course, yeah, we'll pray for you. She's like, no, no, you don't understand. That could cost me everything. We're like, okay, we'll pray for you. So we prayed for Amira, and and the next week, come by, and uh, did did you tell your family? And she's like, no, I I chickened out. We're like, okay, we'll we'll pray for you. And and we prayed for it the next week. uh, uh, Did you tell your family? She said, yeah, I told my family. My mom and dad were very, very sad. They, They said that I'm dead to them. My brothers were very, very angry. They said that you've brought dishonor on the whole family, you've brought dishonor on our community, and if we ever see you again, we will fulfill the law given to us by Allah, and we will kill you. You got baptized, you became a believer. Now, for me to hear that growing up in Littleton, Colorado, uh, that's like, man, I, I know theoretically that's happening out there. But in that moment, I was like, God, are you serious? Like they, they, they said they would kill you, your brother, your sisters, your brother, your, your parents, they would kill you if you ever showed your face again there. She's like, yeah, that's what I expected. And that's why I asked you to pray for me. Well, I'm so sorry, Amira. And so we continued to pray with her and for her. And I just was thinking, you know, uh, we, we don't understand that level of 
uh, rejection, even that level of persecution. We, we know it's out there, but, but when we start to hear some of the stories, uh, we see, man, I mean, we live in a time and a place like we're in a public building that let us rent it out and they know what we're doing here and we're not afraid in this moment uh, that, that anything's going to happen and, and we take so much for granted but, uh, but, but you can see kind of a little bit the winds shifting. So some people call it the, we've entered a post-everything world, post-modern, post Catholic, post-Protestant, post-everything Christian world. But I would say it's not that we've, we're moving into a post-Christian era. In fact, uh, the numbers show in the global south, below the equator, more and more people are coming to Christ than ever before. It is, uh, the Christianity is exploding on the planet. But in the West, there's a shift. There's a little bit of, I wouldn't call it post-Christian, I would call it post-Christendom. So in 352 A.D., when, when Constantine uh, converted to Christianity, uh, Christians went from the margins of society to uh, the positions of power and authority, and it hasn't all been good. There, there have been many good civilizational advances that come through the Christian worldview, but then there are many things that have been done in the name of Christ that are clearly not Christian. And so uh, I think this is a very exciting time for us to be alive. It's a very exciting time to be believers. It's an exciting time as the world begins to uh, reject the, the Christian worldview and the morals that they've borrowed for century after century and say, no, we're going to hold on to different ideas and different truths and different ideas of what marriage is and, and what is right and wrong. And as the world turns against us, that is an exciting time to live. As it gets darker, and, I, and I'm not saying that it, it's going to get super dark, and I, I love living in, in this country, and I love all the things about it, but it is not a Christian nation. There has never been a Christian nation. That won't happen until eternity. Post-Genesis 3, there are no good old days to go back to, by the way. Uh, we're, we're looking for the day when Jesus comes back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so that's what we're striving for. There have been amazing blessings to be a part of this country. But as the country turns against what has been the predominant worldview for the last 1,500 years, and the situation gets darker, that gives you and I, bearers of the light, opportunity to shine brighter. And Christianity has always thrived in the margins. For 1,500 years, basically, if you were born in a country, you were stamped Christian, and we know that is not how you become a Christian. And as people are rejecting cultural Christianity, now you'll have to stand up and take a stand increasingly. And what we're going to see from Jesus in this passage as he's preparing to send his disciples out into the world, and he's preparing to send us out into the world, a very clear message. If you are going to follow Jesus faithfully, it will cost you. So let me ask you this. Has your Christianity cost you anything? Or has it only been benefit? Or, or has, that, has, has that been the way that it's been presented to you? Come to Christ. He'll, he'll fix your marriage. He'll fix your finances. He, he'll, 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 he's, he's, he's the ultimate life coach. If that's how the Christianity you've come to, if things do turn, if they do get darker, you're going to be in for a world of hurt. And Jesus doesn't want that. So as we continue to roll through John chapter 15, you might see right above verse 18 if you have the ESV, it says the hatred of the world. 
I read that uh, in preparation. I'm like, wow, that's going to be a fun sermon. But, um, but I am encouraged by this. And Jesus wants to encourage you. He wants, to, wants us to be realistic. And as he's preparing his disciples and sending them out, he wants them to know three things. That you will face persecution. That uh, why you will face persecution. And how you should respond and why you'll be able to. So that you will. Why and how you should respond and why you will be able to. And so let's look at, uh, starting in verse 18 of uh, chapter 15, Jesus says this. He says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, if you've been with us, you know that these are the last moments that Jesus has with his disciples. He's about to be persecuted himself. He's about to be tortured. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be murdered on a cross. That's all happening. But what Jesus is saying here as he's preparing his disciples, it's not a bait and switch. Like, It's not like, hey, you've been with me for three years. You saw some amazing things. It's all been good. Oh, by the way, it's going to really suck for you after I leave because they're they're going to... No, that's not how Jesus has ever presented following him. And I don't know why so often in church and Christianity and Christian music and all those things, we present Jesus like that. All good, all roses, all sunshine. He doesn't do it. So there's four responses that we could have. I think the first three are not faithful to Christianity. The first response as the world turns against us is basically to just say, well, we're just going to go along with the world. We'll we'll conform with the world. What do you guys believe? We're just like you. We'll consume the things you consume. You've shifted your view on this and that. Okay, we'll shift our view and just go with it. And a lot of churches go that direction. I don't think that's faithful to what it means to be a Christian. Well, another one would be just to try to reconquer, reconquer our position of power and authority. And in so doing, say, we want to have the positions of influence and power in society. And so we're going to go for, we're going to vote for people that maybe we don't, we may maybe need to make some compromises for, but as long as we stay in power, I don't think that honors Christ. There's another one. There's a third option. Just say, man, the world is getting dark. That's getting pretty scary. Let's all come over here and and just hide out. And we'll turn the word Christian from a noun into an adjective. We'll have Christian music. We'll have Christian movies. We'll have Christian fiction. We'll we'll just, because if we go over there, they might get some sin on us, and we don't want that. And we'll just have a holy huddle, and, and we'll just judge them from afar. I don't think that's what it means to be faithful. You might avoid persecution if you do that, if you totally pull out. I think the only faithful response is what I'll call courageous faithfulness and to understand that it will be costly for us to be light in a dark place. So Jesus isn't doing a bait and switch. He said from the beginning, whenever he's called people to him, he said several things. Hey, count the cost. He'll say stuff like Mark eight thirty four. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospel will save it. 
Luke chapter 9, the whole chapter is really Jesus telling people to count the cost. Do you really want to be my follower? He, said, he kind of gets to the end and he says this, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This continues on through the book of Acts. Uh, it's costly to be a faithful follower of Christ. It continues on through the epistles, continues on through the book of Revelation. This is not a bait and switch by Jesus. It, says it, it is costly. Paul writes it like this to the Timothy, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Dietrich Bonhoeffer summarizes, summarizes it well when he says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. He writes that in a book called The Cost of Discipleship. 1930s Germany, as the Nazis were coming into power and they were putting pressure on the, the national church, which was the Lutheran church in Germany, and they forced the Lutheran church to sign a pledge of allegiance to, to Hitler and the Nazi party. And the vast majority of Lutheran churches signed along because they didn't want to face any persecution, but a few said, no, we're not, we're not going to go along with that. And they went underground. They became known as the Confessing Church. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of the professors of the Confessing Church. He wrote this book, The Cost of Discipleship, based on the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he pushes back against the idea of cheap grace, grace that costs nothing, grace as opposed to a, a life of devotion to following Christ. He would go on. He'd be part of an assassination attempt on Hitler. He got discovered. It didn't work. He gets arrested. And just days, just days before the, the war in Europe was over, he was hung with piano wire. So he wrote the book and he lived the book. It is costly to be a faithful follower of Christ. So that's the first thing Jesus says in this passage, verse 20. He says, if they persecuted me. Question, did they persecute Jesus? Answer, yes. They will also persecute you. This is normal Christian life. This is normal outside of uh, Christendom, but even in Christendom, those that most faithfully have followed Christ have paid dearly, often with their lives. The, the men that are in the room that, that are hearing him say this, uh, uh, 10 of them will pay with their life. The one who's writing this will, will be arrested and exiled to Patmos as an old man. They all cost them everything to follow Jesus. And so why does Jesus tell him this? Well, drop down to chapter 16, verse 1. He said, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. So, so it's, it's for their perseverance. It says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming. Whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. Verse 4. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. See, there's a persevering effect that Jesus wants to uh, put on his disciples that did work for them, and he wants it to work for us. Um, some of you have bought shoes from Zappos. Anyone buy any shoes from Zappos? We got some Zappos people. Okay. A few years ago, I was reading a book about Zappos. They're kind of an innovative country, a company, and they've, they've tried some new things. And uh, they realized that almost across the board in all companies, one of the most expensive things is, uh, is when you have employee turnover. 
And so uh, when someone gets trained and you spend thousands of dollars to train them, and then just three months, six months, a year, they're, they're out of there. And so they came up with a new strategy. They would do their interviews like everyone else and say they had 10 people that they wanted to hire. They'll come up to them and they'll say, hey, uh, before we hire you, we, we want to hire you, but we want to let you know a few things. Here's all the difficult things that you're going to face in this job. Here's the long hours. Here's the tough work conditions. It's not going to be all cheery and rosy. It's going to be really, really difficult. And we wanted to let you know that up front. But beyond that, we also wanted to offer you $1,000 right now to walk away. So some people are like, I'll take the $1,000. And they leave. And others are like, no, I want to work for this company. And by and large, they found that their retention rates were through the roof. And other industries, other HR people are, are realizing, don't try to sell people on the company. Tell them, this is really going to be hard. Like, this is going to suck. Like, these are the long hours that you're going to have to do. All these things. And they, they found like, oh, people are more prepared to bear up under the burden when they know it's coming. And so that's what Jesus has done. He's saying, look, this is going to happen. I want you to know. So when it happens, you know, I already told you it was going to happen, but that's okay. So that's that you will be persecuted. The second point that he wants to make is why? Why will we be persecuted? Well, it's something about us and something about Jesus. Something about us. Verse 19, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So since post-Genesis 3, the world has been in rebellion before the creator God of the universe. Every person who's ever lived on the planet has had a rebel heart. Some of them have been transformed by grace and mercy. But in a world full, full of rebels, when someone has, has made their allegiance to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, they're going to take some flack for that. They're going to be seen as traitors to the rebels, and they're going to be turned on. And so Jesus says, it's because you're not of the world. The world hates you. If you're just like the world, if you love all the things the world loves, if you, if you pursue all the values that the world pursues, then they'll consider you one of their own. It will always be costly to follow Christ faithfully. Uh, some of you know, some of you are old enough to remember uh, C. Everett Koop. He was the Surgeon General for uh, the Reagan administration. And uh, when he was appointed, the New York Times wrote an article that, that was entitled Dr. Unqualified, which is quite amazing because he was the leading pediatric surgeon in the country. And they say Dr. Unqualified. Why? Because from their worldview, he was unqualified because as a follower of Christ, he opposed abortive murder. He saw it as it is, the, the intentional destruction of image bearers in the womb, and he says that is murder. There's no gray area in that. And so they say, doctor unqualified. He's not enlightened. Well, as the 80s went on, you know, the AIDS epidemic uh, began to explode. And as the, lead, as the Surgeon General, he did a, a lot of research in it, and he realized, hey, the Reagan administration is a is avoiding some things here um, because they're not a voting block. It was predominantly a, a gay male population problem at that time. And uh, Everett Koop, as a follower of Christ, says, no, these are image bearers. 
And the, the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us that we are to love even our enemies, even if they're not going to vote for us. And because they matter to God, he came out with the, the infamous or famous, depending on where you are on the spectrum, AIDS report. And he said, we need to spend millions, we need to do education, we need to do whatever we can to help this problem. And now all of a sudden, New York Times is writing articles, he's enlightened, he's one of us. And on the right there said, he, he's Judas, he's Benedict Arnold, he's abandoned us. Why? Because he's not of this world. He's a follower of the one true king. And so there's going to be times, no matter what your political persuasion is, if you are a follower of the king, you're going to take shots from both sides. And that's what he did. He says, no, I am a a citizen of the kingdom. He's probably the the most influential uh, surgeon general the country's had in recent memory. And as as it was coming to the end, he was thinking maybe he would get a cabinet appointment somewhere uh, in the next administration or whatever. And someone came to him and said, oh, no. You're not going to get anything. You're too independent. Like, you can't be trusted on the right or the left now. That's what it means to be a faithful follower of Christ. We aren't owned by any of the systems, institutions, education of this world. We serve a king in a world full of rebels. It will cost us something because we are not of this world. So it's something in us. And then it's something in Jesus. Verse 21 says, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If they had not come and spoken to him, them, they would not be, have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse because of, for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. So genuine persecution is, is, a, is a very wide spectrum, by the way. So so we think of it maybe as getting arrested, beaten up, murdered. That's certainly persecution. Uh, But it can just, it can mean uh, loss of job, loss of house. It can mean scorn. It can be mocking. It can be a very, very wide spectrum. But we need to be very careful when when we think about persecution. I know a lot of Christians that claim persecution when they're just jerks. Like, no, you're just being a jerk and, and they don't like jerks. So stop it. Like, you're not representing Christ well, uh, Jesus put it this way in uh, Matthew 5, 11. He says, blessed are, are you when others revile you and persecute you and are there all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. He says, you're blessed if it's on my account. Now, if, if it's just your bad personality, that's on you. I'm not, I'm not blessing that. Like, if you're just weird, that, that's on you. Like, if, if you've got a... a, a, a Jesus fish on the back of your thing, eating a Darwin fish and, and political bumper stickers all over and then someone pulls up next to you and flips you off. That's not persecution. That's, they just don't like your political position there. Uh, that's not persecution. It's because of our association with the message of Jesus. And, and so sometimes they, they reject us because we're weird. Again, it's just like you're trying to share the gospel with your friend, but you don't really know how to just tell them the gospel. And so you're at lunch with them, and they get up to go to the bathroom, and you rearrange their fries into the word Jesus. So when they came back, and they're just like, stop, stop it. Like, don't do that. Like, just, I just see a lot of Christians claiming persecution when it's not persecution. But as we represent Christ faithfully, like, we should not add to the offense of the gospel. The Bible's very clear. The gospel is an offense. In a world full of rebels to say, there is one true king. 
and you owe him everything, and you are in traitorous rebellion to him, and you deserve death. They don't like that message. And if you say, but he sent his own son to pay the price that you deserve, and he went to a cross and bore the wrath of, of your sin and your shame on the cross in your place, and all he says is come and bow the knee to the true king of kings and lord of lords, and you can come into heaven. They don't like that unless Jesus does something in their hearts because we love our autonomy. We, we, we don't mind religion as long as I'm in control, but we don't like the message of the gospel that says you are a sinner. Christ has died for you. There is grace and mercy in the heart of God, but you've got to repent and turn and fall on your face before the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so that should be the offense that we carry. And when we carry that offense and we're rejected, Jesus says, you're blessed because it's really about me and it's not about you. So that's the second thing. The third one is how do we respond? How will we be able to? Verse 25 says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without, cause, without a cause. What he's saying is long, long, long ago, the prophets predicted that Jesus would be rejected. And the prophets predicted that the people of God would be rejected. What he's saying is God is in control of the rebellion of the rebels even when things seem really, really bad. So, so you can rest in that. If things go really, really dark for us, know that God is in control. And verse 26, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. Jesus is going to leave, but he's going to send his spirit, and his spirit's going to take up residence in our lives, and he's going to teach us all truth. He's going to bring us from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's going to give us new hearts. He's going to convict the world of sin, and he's going to make much of Jesus. And Jesus says, the spirit will help you. God will be with you, and he'll bear witness about me. And then finally, verse 27, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So he's talking to the disciples. He's talking to us. We will bear witness. That is our mission in a dark world to hold our light out. That's why the first three options don't make any sense for Christians. The only option that makes sense is courageous faithfulness, knowing that it's going to cost us to bear witness. We go as light bearers. That word witness in the Greek is martyrios, martyrio. We get the word martyr from. It just means to bear witness, to tell testimony of the truth. It means martyr, but that word has been so associated with persecution that now we associate it with those that die for the faith. Because the first three and a half centuries of Christianity, that, those two things were tied very, very close together. And there's parts in the world today where those things are still tied very, very close together. I bear witness and I die. We're called to bear witness. So, how are you living? I would say this, if you are not yet a follower of Christ, this message is, is great for you. Because Jesus told a parable once. He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a, a treasure hidden in the field. When a man found it, he buried it and went in his joy and sold everything he had to buy that field. What is Jesus saying there? Jesus is saying, if it costs you everything, if you have to give up everything and you get the kingdom, that's a great exchange. And you'll be exceedingly happy and ecstatic forever and ever and ever. Oh, will it cost you? 
Yeah, probably. Probably none of us, maybe, I don't know, I can't predict the future that it'll cost us our lives. It may cost you jobs, it may cost you relationships, it might cost you friendships, it may cost you uh, family members, but it will cost you something. And yet Jesus says, if it costs you everything, it's a wonderful exchange. You get him forever. But if you're a believer, which option have you chosen of the four? Are you hoping for a return to the glory days? Again, I don't know when those were prior to Genesis chapter 3. Are you uh, hoping that uh, if you just act like the world and believe the things of the world, the world will just kind of like you and, and you can do your Christian thing and your world thing? And Jesus says, that's not a faithful witness. Are, are you just afraid of the world and you don't really have any non-believing friends and you have no meaningful contact points, you have no engagement, no, no bearing witness, then you've just kind of gone off into a holy huddle. That's not a faithful way to follow Christ. We are called to a costly faithfulness following Christ. I, I want to share one last story as we, as we close here this morning. I, w- I discovered this this week. Maybe some of you saw it. It was an article on the, the Gospel Coalition. Um, it's about Leah Sharabu. Leah Sharabu. Leah's from Nigeria. Uh, she's a 15-year-old. Eight months ago, she was uh, abducted along with 110 other girls by Boko Haram, a a radical Islamic uh, terrorist organization running around North Africa right now. She was the only Christian of these girls. Uh, Immediately, five of them were killed. And uh, then after a couple months, they decided they were going to let the girls go. But, but they said they were going to force all the girls to first uh, uh, convert to Islam and to wear the hijab and, and make the profession of faith in Islam. And, and the other girls quickly, because they had no faith at all, they quickly said, yeah, whatever it takes to get us on that truck, we'll, we'll do that. And, and so they did that, uh, but Leah did not. Leah did not. Last week, uh, they allowed her to release a, a, a little video uh, Boko Haram did, and, and she's just making this appeal to the, to the nation, to the president to, of Nigeria to help her out. She says, I'm Leah Sharibu, the girl that was abducted in Depachi. I'm calling on the government and people of goodwill to intervene to get me out of my current situation. I also plead with to the members of the public to help my mother, my father, my younger brother and relatives kindly help me out of my predicament. I'm begging you to treat me with compassion. I'm calling on the government, particularly the president, to pity me and get me out of this situation. Thank you. When the other girls were set free and they eventually got back to their village and they went and told, uh, told Leah's parents why she's the only one that didn't come, they said this, they said to them, we begged her to recite the Islamic declaration and to put on the hijab and get into the vehicle, but she said it was not her faith. So why should she say it was so? Leah's friends told her mother, if they want to kill her, they can go ahead, but she won't say she's a Muslim. The reason I tell that, one, is so we can pray for her and understand that she represents really millions around the world right now. There's a massive persecution now breaking out afresh in China, uh, in Africa and other places. 
The reason I want to say that is because we should be aware. We, we should, in, in our luxury and in our safety, we should at least be praying for them. But the other reason I told you that story is because I have a 15-year-old daughter. And when I hear of a 15-year-old that says, I will rather choose Jesus than death or slavery or sexual slavery, all those things, that, all the horrific things that she is facing right now, man, that stirs my faith. So we're going to pray for her, but... Uh, Let's pray that we have that kind of courageous, costly faith as well. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Jesus, that you say these things not to be a downer to us, but to encourage us, to help us persevere, to count the cost of following you. Lord, help us to be like Leah, to have the kind of faith that says you are better than life. Lord, we do pray for her now. God, we pray for a miracle of intervention. We pray for uh, angels to, to invade that camp and, and to protect her and, and to set her free if that's your will. God, we also know that there are countless others, brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the centuries and even today that uh, are paying the ultimate price to follow you. Lord, would you help us to remember to pray for them and would you use their faith to stir our faith on whatever that looks like to be faithful and courageous in 2018, Parker, Colorado. So Father, we ask all these things in the matchless and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.